We are looking this morning at Luke chapter number 15. We worked through the first 10 verses last time. We'll pick up from verse 11 and go down through the end of the chapter today. Let me finish reading out the story. We've read through verse 20. I'll pick up reading from verse 21. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be married. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what, things, what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. One of the most preached throughout all of church history. One of the most studied and commented about. Lord, may we not allow that to cause us not to focus on it here this morning. As we've gone verse by verse through Luke's gospel account, You've brought us at this time to these verses, so surely you have a word for us from them. So we ask for your blessing upon this time. May the church be edified through the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time we considered the lost coin and the lost sheep, and today we move on to the lost sons. The last kind of lostness with the lost coin and the lost sheep is a little different than what we find here today as these sons find themselves in a chosen state. They know what they are doing. The younger asks for and takes what is his and goes to the far country. The older stays home, but is really, we find him, he's, he's sort of far away, even though he's right there at home. Rika notes here, we pity the lost sheep and we prize a lost coin, but identify most closely with the lost son. The son gets lost by his own deliberate will, not haphazardly like the sheep or helplessly like the coin, but willfully and defiantly. He is lost because he wants to be lost. But just because he is a son, there is even greater joy when he is found. So we work through this text this morning. I want you to compare yourself to each son, to use them to become aware of your relationship with the father. And as we look at the father, become, become aware of his similarity to father God. I want us to see the three characters here in this text today very clearly. Two sons who in sort of polar opposite situations seem to both be asking, is this all there is to life? And then this father who anxiously awaits his son's return at home. I like how John MacArthur summarizes these verses. I think he does it 
kind of in a few sentences, a whole sermon. The prodigal is an example of sound repentance. The elder brother illustrates the wickedness of the Pharisees' self-righteousness, prejudice, and indifference toward repenting sinners. And the father pictures God, eager to forgive and longing for the return of the sinner. Amen. We begin with the younger son in verses 11 through 19. This younger son was growing up and he was getting ready to see the world. I think we all go through some sort of this probably in our lives. Home just doesn't fit us anymore. The grass of the far country seems greener. The opportunity of the far country seems better. So he asks for his inheritance and his loving father gives it. Notice again verse 11 and 12. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, R.C. Sproul explains for us in his commentary here that normally sons would inherit their father's estate upon his death. And we understand that, but there's more. There was a provision in the ancient Jewish law for a son to request the gift of his inheritance during the father's lifetime. He didn't have the authority to dispose of the actual property of the inheritance, but he could, while his father was still living, um, use the income from that inheritance. I think probably the closest we have to that in our own world would be the investment vehicle of, and and it just slipped my mind. People put their money in this. You draw a little bit over it for the, what is it called? No. Annuities? No. Maybe it's, and it becomes a trust. That's what we wanted to get to, a trust fund. But what is the thing called? People buy these. It's not a retirement vehicle. It's sort of a, I'm going to set this up so that later in life I've got some money set aside. Is that an annuity? An annuity in a trust. Obviously, Chance doesn't have any of these. And so he doesn't know what he's talking about here. (laughs) I think that'd be the closest we would have to this. Should a, a parent with some means put this thing aside in this trust for the child. They can't touch the principle of that asset because they want it to keep growing and don't want them to be able to squander it, but they could take the income from it. Now, take that understanding, which seems very vanilla and easygoing in our culture, but don't miss the shocking nature of this request in the text and in the time of this story. This was not the young man saying, I know you've got this trust fund set up for me, and if it's all right with you, I'd like to go ahead and start using it. For him to make this request early for his father would have only been used in extreme cases where there's great contention between the son and the father. And for the son to make this request, it was as if he's saying to his father here, our relationship is so bad that it doesn't exist any different than it would if you were already dead. So go ahead and let me take the income off of this asset So I can live as if you were already dead. That's very harmful to the father. And it reads over into the heart very well of the son. He doesn't want just the income. He he wants it all and he wants it now. Rudyard Kipling wrote a little poem to summarize the mindset of this younger son. And I thought it was fun enough to include here. He said, my father glooms and advises me. My brother sulks and despises me. My mother catechizes me till I want to go out and swear. <laughs> any, any brothers in here can give an amen. My brother sulks and despises me. 
Any children in here who can give an amen to my father glooms and advises me? Oh, dad, why are you always on my back? I remember thinking that as a teenager. Don't do this. Do that. Make sure you're not late. Make sure you're early. All of these things. All of the time. Well, with this, the younger son goes to live a little and to see the world. He gathered all together and he, he took his journey. Now notice that phrase here in the text. It says, the younger of them, in verse 12, said to his father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. And he divided unto them his living. Verse 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey. Now the, the Greek word, there's a term that we would take the, the English phrase from for gathered all together. The term is synago, S-Y-N-A-G-O. That term doesn't mean the same as what we will understand it in our English of gather all together. When I say to you, gather all your things together and leave, what does that mean? It means get all your stuff and go, right? That's what it means. But that Greek word synago actually meant something else to the hearers as Jesus is telling them this parable. What it actually meant was as he took everything and he converted it into money. Synago means to convert into money. So he took whatever he could that was a hard asset and he made it into a liquid asset and he was cash heavy so that he could go and live however he want and spend the money on this journey. He liquidated his assets. Now I think we must be sure as we get into the, the story of this young son, there's some observable traits here that are avoidable in our own lives. We see selfishness. We see ingratitude, rebellion, greed. He's unloving toward his family. In fact, you could probably lay out this story up against those things and say, well, it, well, it started here and it ended there. And for sure where we see it ending is he's unloving toward his own family. We'll find even as he returns home to the father, it's not because he misses old dad. What's his motivation for returning home? He's hungry. I, I won't forget when I was first married, and it wasn't because I was hungry. Shanae fed me well and still does. But I'd still had the tendency to drop by mom and dad's house. We all, you know, they didn't live too far away, and I worked a lot in the little town that they lived in. And so I just dropped by there, you know, mama, what do you got to eat? You know, they, these kinds of things. I was 19 when I got married. You know, had I been... 32, I'd have been way more mature than that. My dad at some point had to say to me, son, you have your own wife now. And your mother is my wife. And she does my laundry and she cooks for me. And you go home to your own wife there. He wasn't telling me I wasn't welcome, but he was explaining to me that things had changed just a little bit there. This guy's just the opposite. He's unloving toward his family. He didn't want to drop by and see old dad. He's just coming by because he's hungry. He's wasted what he had. He's squandered it. Maybe he's even run up some debts. I don't know. We, we only know what we know from this text, but it wasn't a good situation. We find in verse 13 that once he's away from home, his wealth seems to take wings. He gathered all together. He took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. Now the term riotous means loose living. It carries multiple implications here. 
It means he was loose in his discipline. I think the easiest understanding of that in this text is he was not careful with his spending. It also carries the implication of being loose in your morals. And certainly if you're loose in your morals, you're going to be loose in your spending. But, but he's not careful how the money was being used that he was using. Now, verse 30 lays out for us very clearly how his brother perceived the money being spent up. He says, as soon as this thy son was come, which devoured his living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Now, the only way we would take that as truth is because the Holy Spirit allowed Luke to pass it down to the church and it's received there as a fact. Now, it could be received as a fact as this is what the brother thought, but it doesn't say that. It says the brother says this thing and we receive it as a fact. So we would assume that his being loose in his morals far in the far country, away from the father's house, caused him to squander his living, to squander his inheritance here and leaves him in a sad state. That's where we come up with a title that is often given to this passage of prodigal. What is a prodigal? A person who is wasteful of his or her money, possessions, time, and talents. A prodigal. The undisciplined life, the life of riotous living, costs more than he ever realized. And I think we could all say amen. That is always the truth. Going wild will always end up with unexpected costs. Sow your wild oats, but you're going to reap what you sow. We mustn't waste our lives giving away the Father's inheritance. Don't feed your addictions. Don't always only be indulging your passions. And don't misuse your time and your money and your talents. Thomas Huxley said, A man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just as he likes. Do you remember as a kid when mom would say, No, you can't have a cookie? And you might think to yourself, I can't wait till I'm grown up and have my own house and I have as many cookies as I want. And then it's not long after that you go to the doctor and the doctor says, Are you having as many cookies as you want? A man's worst difficulties begins when he's able to do just as he likes. Verse 14, just as he begins to run out of money, worst case scenario happens. Famine. Now this takes me back to the man building the bigger barns. You remember that a few weeks back? He had a bumper crop. What am I going to do? I'm going to tear down my barns, build bigger ones so I have a place to store all this. And the flaw in his logic, not that that was a, a completely wrong thing to do. Sometimes you do need to build bigger barns. A few years back, I had to increase the size of my barn. I had more kids than I had before, so I had to put a couple more stalls in there for these boys to, to night in. It feels unholy every time I kick that. The problem with the man who built the bigger barns was he didn't think through that that night he was going to die. So what good was it? Well, here's this young man. He's just living frivolously. Often we get to that place, hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, or whatever you want to call. Sometimes people live this way. The one radical that could mess that up, even though it's working for now, is a famine. And that's exactly what happens here. And in fear of starving, he hires himself out. So verse 14, when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. 
And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. So this heir to a landowner becomes a hired servant. This young man raised to be Jewish and clean according to the old covenant law is now daily defiling himself with these swine. It's a choice that seems like necessity, but it's not. And it led him to basically renounce his Jewish faith that he had been raised in. Verse 16 says, And he would have fain filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Isn't this a sad story? I mean, as you think of this story, if you're reading the first few, he's going to go to the far country. You at least wish the best for him. Even if you disagree with how he went about it or what he's going to do, you don't want to see it end like this. And then it just gets worse. And then it gets worse again. Then it gets worse again. And here comes this young man who had a good life and seems to have a loving father. A father who had some resources. I heard one preacher say one time, this boy had been through famine before. Now, I don't know. That's not in the text. I don't know how he got that idea. But he said he made it through fine because he had a dad who had a Dave Ramsey rainy day fund. Well, maybe. It's a sad story. And I would put on the text here that this is when this young man looks around and he asks, is this all there is to life? He tried it on his own. Kind of like Solomon wrote, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. I've tried everything under the face of the earth. There's nothing new and it's all vain. I think this young man finds himself here. In verse number 17, we find that he came to himself. Verse number 18, we find that he confessed his sin. Verse number 19, we find that he conceded service. So it seems like he's on the right track. Notice verse 17, he came to himself and said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? Now while he still had money, and while he could live the life he wanted, he wasn't thinking clearly. He wasn't himself. I imagine his dad said when he, when he indirectly said, I wish you were dead, go ahead and give me one I'm going to get when you are dead. His dad probably said he's not thinking like himself. This is not the boy I remember. But once he's broke and he's hungry, he begins to be able to think just a little more clearly. R.C. Sproul says here, a person can get so caught up in a kind of activity that he doesn't even know who he is anymore. Before this man could ever go to his father, he first had to come to himself. Some of you deal with family members just like that on a regular basis. I want to encourage you to hold fast and pray on and just remember that they're not themselves. And until they can ever return to the Lord or return to you, they're going to have to come to themselves. Verse 18, he confessed his sin. I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Now, now note the, the, the tense of what is being done here. He's not at his father's house saying this. He's saying in his mind, here's the plan. I'm going to go back to dad and I'm going to tell him I've sinned against heaven and before thee. But he's thinking clearly. I've sinned against my father. I've sinned against God. I think that's typical of repentance. We often have to make things right with God and with those we've wronged. And then in verse number 19, as he sort of fills out his plan, what am I going to do? Starving to death. He says, I'll tell him, I'm no more worthy to be your son. 
Make me as one of your hired servants. So he concedes service. Now that's not how he left. He left an heir, a son. But in his mind right now, he'll gladly accept the role of a servant above verse 16, where he would have fain filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. Now, as we find ourselves approaching verse 20, all of this is still just words. There are no actions to prove his confession and to show his true repentance. But I'm so thankful that in verse number 20, we read, and he arose and he came to his father, that he went and he did. We need a lot more of that in the modern church. There's a whole lot of words. I've sinned. I've made wrong decisions. I've made a mess of my life. I need to do better. I'm going to do better, etc. That's good. But follow that up with some actions. Go and do. Now, I want to pause there because that brings us into the understanding of the father and skip ahead to verse 25 and look at the older son. So we can end with the father because that's the best part. The older son had received his inheritance as well. Now, that comes to us from verse number 12. As the sentence says that the father divided unto them his living. So the younger son requested it. And in this moment, both sons begin to receive their inheritance. But the older son's difference is that he stayed home and he worked on the family land. Deuteronomy 21 lays this out for us, how the Jews would have operated in this time. But it required that the elder son receive twice as much as the rest of the sons. Any firstborn sons in here this morning? I'm going to give an amen there. Woo-hoo! <laughs> Any not firstborn sons who want to fight now? <laughs> so there's only two sons in this story. The younger son will receive a third of the total property of the father, and the older then retains two thirds. He, he has a greater portion here. This older son seems to be responsible, he seems to be trustworthy, he seems to be a hard worker. Then Then one day he's out working and he hears a party back at the house. Verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and he heard dancing. And he finds out that his brother has come home and the father is celebrating here. Verse 26. He called into one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, thy brother is come and thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. And he's angry about this. Verse 28, he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. He even begins to complain to the father in verse 29 saying, you never had a party like this for me. And he answering and said to his father, lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Now, this is a a grammar exercise, but it does bring us into the mentality of this young man here. I want you to notice how many times in verse number 29 he uses a personal pronoun. Somebody want to count them up there? He's very focused on himself in this instance. Now, put that in context. His brother has been gone. No matter what happened or, I I don't know. I don't know that, they didn't have email. 
There was no Facebook. There were no cell phones. How does he know? The brother's been in the far country and he's back home now. Now he seems to know from verse number 30. So maybe that's a part of his problem here. But it's, to me, it just seems awfully harsh to immediately be just anti this. You should at least want to say hello, but, but he doesn't. That could have been from the leaving though, right? So you kind of have to play this game of who's in the right, who's in the wrong. But we can for sure read into this man's who did the count? How many in 29? Personal pronouns. How many? I haven't counted them yet. But eight? Well, no, just verse 29. Yeah, if you keep going, there are more. He says, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgress I at any time. That's two. Yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Five in, in just this one little statement here. Very self-centered. Now it's logical. He works hard every day. And now this prodigal who's been off party and gets a feast. And I would warn us here to be careful that we don't begin to justify his feelings because in his humanity, we can understand why he would feel this way. But as we read and see his actions become irrational, we get more into the mind of this brother. Surely we saw that in the younger son in many ways, but you would think oh, the one who stayed home, the other older brother, kept the farm, kept things going, was taking care of his dad. This is a good guy, but it's not quite the case. Verse 28, he said, it says he was angry and would not go in. So his father came out and entreated him. What is he saying there? It's kind of a pout lip. Y'all can have the party if you want to. I'm not going in there. You know he wanted a steak. They just killed the fatted calf. He wanted to eat, but he was mad. He's mad at his brother. He's upset with his father. Verse 30, he gives a real Baptist answer. But as soon as this thy son was come, which had devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. That sinner. I'm not going on there and getting involved with that sinner. Now, who's Jesus pointing to there? Remember the first couple of verses here. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. He's, he's convicting these guys. I also think it's unique in verse 30 that he's no longer considering this young man his brother. He doesn't call him my brother. He calls him your son. And then in this, he begins to even himself question the wisdom of the father. As soon as this your son was come, who's devoured your living, you killed for him the fatted calf. This past bitterness is beginning to birth in him some unforgiveness. And I think this is at the point in this brother's life, this son's life, where he looks around and he asks, is this all there is to life? And just in this moment, we realize this older brother who's stayed home is actually just as far away from the father as the younger brother. So both sons are left asking, is this all there is to life? I think there are many who fill churches every week who feel just the same way. 
If you're like the younger son, you look around at your mess of a life away from the father's house and you ask, is this all there is to life? And if you're like the older son, you sit right in the father's house where things couldn't be better. I mean, this is the middle of a famine and they're killing a fatted calf. But still he's saying, is this all there is to life? And I would say, as we find here in the text by Jesus' parable, I would say to those of us who may sit here this morning asking either of those questions, well, let me introduce you to this father. Verse 20, we see the younger son's return. Now, this father in the text, he illustrates that no matter which son you are, you can always return to father God. The father loved his children. Knowing it was ill-advised, he allowed his sons to have their inheritance before they were ready. Surely he suspected they might waste it, but he loved them so much he gave it to them anyway. Even after both sons had gotten away from the house, this father is working toward their return. Notice verse number 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He's a long ways off. It wasn't like the father heard some noise and there was somebody coming through the gate or somebody on the front stoop. He was a long ways off. The father was prepared and and waiting and looking for him. This young man had realized he's better at home with the father. He goes home prepared to just be a servant. But the father is waiting on his return. And when he saw him, he ran to him. Verse 21 and 22, he puts a robe on him, shoes on his feet, a ring on his finger. The son begins to say to him in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And if you remember back from verse 18 and 19, he plans to say some more. He never gets those words out of his mouth. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. And probably there in verse 24, we, we get some ideas on the brother's feelings toward this. When he requested his inheritance, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what there'd be if you were dead. I'm going to the far country. Maybe they begin to treat as if he had died. He, he was dead. That makes sense for what the father says here. Now there's some significance to the robe and the shoes and the ring. The, the robe was typically a robe reserved for a guest of honor. Should a dignitary, someone traveling through, need to use hospitality in your home for the night? You would have had this for them to put on. It signified them as the guest of honor, but it also made them comfortable while you were there in their house. So this is the father's way of saying someone special is here. It shows that he's accepting him and he's forgiving him. To put shoes on him signifies freedom, but also freedom as a son. The servants didn't wear shoes. Only the family, the owners, they wore the shoes. And so for him to have shoes on is to say, you know, you're not going to be my servant. You're my son. And then the ring signified authority. You've got shoes on, so you're not a servant. You're a free man. And you've got the authority of the father back on your hand. Though you've squandered your inheritance, I'm, I'm giving it back to you again. You have the authority to act in my name. So this is the father saying here, you're not a servant. 
You're my son. You're a free man. And I think should he had run up any debts, I think this is a way of saying your debts are paid. Now, we need to note the difference between the son's plan for return and the father's actions in his return. Because in our human nature, we, we like to act like the son. It's a fine lesson for us in repentance. Because this son has a plan. He is broke and he is hungry and he wants his old life back. And his plan is to return to the father and ask forgiveness. And he's even prepared to take a lower place than he left with. So he is on track to getting his life back together. I mean, people down at the local bar where he hung out said, boy, that guy's really turning his life around. Have you seen him lately? He's just got a different air about him. He said he's headed home. Took a bath the other day. The world's proud of him. The programs he was in said, you're on the right track. The secular humanism that he had gotten involved in said, you don't need an outside power. You could just be your best. And now that you've fallen and you need to reach out for outside power, it's you plus that. It's not that in spite of you. Often this gets preached as his repenting his way back to the Father. And then there is no salvation without repentance, but it's not what he's doing here. He's still trying to do everything on his own terms. That's what he's doing here. Here's what I'll do. I'll go and I'll tell dad this and I'll tell dad that. And then dad's bound to have to do this. He planned the situation out. Just as he couldn't return to his father on his terms, you can't come to God on your terms. That's the lesson we learn in repentance here. And, and what's his motivation? It's, it's food and a job. He don't want restoration with the father. He even says that. He doesn't come back begging the father, can I please be your son again? He says, I'll just be a servant. I just know that you're a good employer and you'll take good care of me better than the guy whose hogs I've been washing. Watching. Sounded like I said washing. I don't think he'd been washing this guy's hogs. Maybe, I don't know about pigs, but I don't think that's a thing they do. I've seen Charlotte's Web and read the book. When you do wash them, they just go back to the mud. But I also want you to notice the father has a plan. So verse 18 and 19, we get the son's plan, which is works. Verses 21 through 24, we see the father's plan, which is grace. The son says, I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your servants. He came to his father. He had said, I will go to my father and say, I've sinned against heaven and before thee. When the father saw him, he ran to him. He had compassion. He fell on his neck. He kissed him. He told the servants, bring this guest a robe. He's my son. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Kill the fatted calf. Let's eat and be married. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost in his fountain. And they began to be merry. I want to pause there just for a minute and remind you that in the moment of this wonderful grace from the Father, we see who is the type of the Pharisee in this story, the older brother. He's upset with grace. Now, Christian, I just want to remind you, anytime you start getting upset with grace, what does that tell you about yourself? That's very problematic. <laughs> Trust me, I know. 
I tell you guys this jokingly, but I'm dead serious. I'm a recovering legalist. If there were a support group, I'd need to be in it. And there have been multiple times in my life where I've struggled to offer forgiveness. It's not how we need to be. And I work on that. And I ask God to help me not to be that way. But this is very convicting. I, I struggled last week as Gracia Burnham told her story. I wanted to kill these guys that, that kidnapped her. I don't know that I'm even capable, but in my mind, machine gun in the woods, pow. And she tells this story about how they got these comic books in their language. These terrorists had been put in prison and they reach for the gospel and she communicates with them and she's praising the Lord for it. And it just blew my mind. This son here still has a need to tell the father what to do and how it should go. He's admitting that he's failed, but, but he's not saying, I'm at your mercy. He's saying, I've failed, but, but don't you worry, Dad. I figured out how to make this all right. I messed up before, but I've got it figured out now. I'm going to work. I'm going to pay back my debts. I'm going to be a better person. And I just love how this is a picture of God just smacking us with grace. Do you remember when the high sheriff of heaven called the Holy Spirit arrested you and drug you to the Father? Maybe you didn't use those words. Do you remember the day you were saved? You, 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 you probably, some of you are churchgoers. You're kind of already on your own path. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to marry a Christian. I'm going to be ethical and moral in business. I'm going to be a good citizen. I have all of these plans. One of the hardest things for me, the night that the Holy Spirit convicted me, you've got to be saved or you're going to go to hell, was admitting to even to myself that I needed to be saved. I was 11 years old. I was a church kid. I wore blazers to church on Sunday morning. My daddy was a preacher. My mama taught Sunday school. We had the church van parked in our front yard. How dare Jesus eat with sinners. It was a hard thing that night just for me to admit within myself. And, and you've heard my story. I didn't pray, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need salvation. I said, Lord, if I'm not saved, it didn't get me any traction, you know. I wasn't saved. Why was I even having that conversation with God? If I were saved, I wouldn't have been having that conversation with God. And a few minutes into that, and the Lord crushed my heart, and you could see it because the tears began to flow out of my eyes, and I a blubbering mess of an 11-year-old all by myself because I'd gone to the youth guy and he said, go to the preacher. And I'd gone to the preacher and the preacher said, oh, you're fine. Because he'd already baptized me. And so I just knelt down and I just, Phew. please save me. I don't want to go to hell. Now that got traction. But it was nothing that I had done. It was what God was doing in me in that moment in time. This father, he stops this son mid-sentence. He exerts his sovereignty. He's in charge, not the son. This is going to go as he intends it to go. He doesn't intend the son to have to earn anything. He intends this to be a space of grace in this young man's life. Now I'm struggling to preach that because I'm thinking, he doesn't deserve it. He's wasted. He sinned. He ought to have to repent. Make him crawl into the house. Make him eat spaghetti while everybody else eats steaks. Any spaghetti lovers in here that I just offended? What's wrong with you people? 
Just kidding, just kidding. But we need to see this significance here up against the audience. See, we get caught up in this story sometimes and forget chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, He's teaching these people something. He's with tax collectors and sinners. A tax collector was despised for taking a monetary advantage over his own countrymen. A sinner in this context meant one who was outside of the old covenant law. One considered unclean. Well, the prodigal son has offended in both of these areas, yet the father is still receiving him in this story. Do you see what that speaks to these Pharisees who said, you receive publicans and sinners. Jesus is making a clear point to these Pharisees or how things are going to be now that the kingdom has come. He even points out the position of these Pharisees through the older son in this story. Verse 28, what is the son? He's angry. What are these Pharisees? They're angry. They are murmuring. They're saying to Jesus these complaints. Verse 29, what does he point out that the older son says? All these years I've never transgressed your commandments. What's the testimony of the Pharisees? Well, you didn't just get to become a Pharisee. You were considered a Pharisee because all these years you never transgressed the commandments. In fact, they had symbolic things all on their attire to prove it. So the guy with the most stuff and the, the longest tassels was the most holy. Jesus is pointing out to him, to them here, you're in error. What was the older son going to have to do in this context to be with the father? The father came out and entreated him, but the father didn't say, okay, I'll just stay out here with you. What was he entreating him to do? Come to the house. Jesus' message to these Pharisees is clear. You've kept the old covenant up to this point. Best you could, you've done right by God. You've been waiting on the Messiah to come. The Messiah has come but you're going to have to come into the house. And they're outside and they're saying, no way. I mean, Gentiles haven't even entered the equation yet. These are just other Jews who they would say, they're not part of the deal. They are not faithful church members, Jesus. Haven't been to Sunday school in years. They don't come on Sunday nights. They don't come on Wednesday nights. Yes, I'm preaching at some of you. What is Jesus saying here? You're right up to this point, but at this point you're getting it wrong. And you're the older brother and you're you're outside the house. And if you stay outside the house, you're staying far away from the Father even though you're right here. We don't read about the older son's return. But we do see the Father's approach to him here. Comes out and he entreats him. It's wonderful to read that just as with the younger son, the father comes to him. When he saw the younger son a great way off, he ran to him. When he noticed the older son outside the house, he went to him. He entreats him to come home. Isn't that so telling of Father God? 
no matter what end of that spectrum you find yourself on, He'll still come to you. Verse 31 and 32, I think it's also important to note how the Father clarifies to the Son all that He already has. And, and try to hear this as we read it from the ears of a Pharisee who's struggling with Jesus being the Messiah and that the kingdom has come. And He said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. What is he saying there? The blood of bulls and goats could not atone, but the pure blood of the Lamb can forgive all the sins. Oh, these tax collectors, these sinners outside the old covenant, they couldn't be a part of you until they, they personally made some changes and they weren't willing to make changes. And even then, it just wasn't going to get them there. But now the Lamb of God has come who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist preached this and it is true. And finally, this shows us again, as in the coin and the sheep, the rejoicing of the Father. We already read in verse number 7, verse number 10, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels. And there we finally see it. The Father is rejoicing because His Son, who was dead, is alive again, who was lost and is found. I want to end just bringing this back to us. I think there's a longing in each and every one of us to be at home in the Father's house. Whatever that means, I don't mean that physically, I mean it spiritually. We need to be knit with the Father. We never satisfy that longing until we are where we should be with Father God. We find in this story, He is coming to you. You just need to accept His loving embrace. There are days when I'll, I'll say to my wife, oh, I'm just so thirsty. I, 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 can't, I can't quench my thirst today. And Jack is our water police around the house. He'll, he'll always remind me, have you had any water today? And I'll tell him to shut up, and then I'll go and get some water. But, but I'll have had some tea, and I'll have had a Coke, and I'll have had some coffee. And boy, I'm just I'm drinking and drinking and drinking all day long, but I just can't quench my thirst. Well, what I've been wanting is water. We, we do this in our living. We do this in our relationships. When we're actually, what we're longing for is that intimate relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. But are we quenching Him through riotous living? Are we quenching Him through this religious bitterness? Speaking of being homesick, there's a little boy who would play in a park every day near his house under a statue of General Grant on horseback. Well, the day came that his family was going to move from the city and move out to the country. And so this little boy went out to the park to say goodbye to all of his friends there in the park. And in the last gesture of farewell, farewell he stands under this statue of General Grant on horseback. And the little boy says with tears in his eyes, goodbye, General Grant. And whoever that is on your back, <laughs> I'm going to miss you. This little boy is already homesick, though he hasn't left. And he illustrates wonderfully how you and I can come to miss the right things in life. If you're not in fellowship with the Heavenly Father, the odd feeling that you're trying to fix this morning, I would just call it homesickness. B.B. Warfield said, 
The Father in heaven has no righteous children on earth. His grace is needed for all. And most of all, for those who dream, they have no need of it. It's very true. We find here in this text two kinds of people. And two kinds of running from God. But still just one way home. Grace. Verse number 20. The father saw him when he was still a great way off. He was looking for him. He had compassion toward him. He ran to him and he embraced him. This is the father's position toward you. So that really leaves the ball in your court. Let's stand and pray.